You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. church. Great to see all of you here. And happy Veterans Day. I know a number of you have served, or maybe some of you currently are serving. So happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. We're grateful for you, and thank you for your commitment to serve our country. So thankful. Um, And how many of you know that God blesses us so that we'll be a blessing to somebody else? And I think when I think about Old Town, that's just what was on my heart a little while ago. God blessed us so that we could be a blessing to somebody else. And I thought of the words of Paul, and he says, what do you have that you have not received? Anything we have is because God gave it to us. And so we can either keep it for ourselves and hoard it, or we can give it away. And I'm so thankful that God's kingdom is advancing there in Helena. Now, we're in Matthew 25. I'll catch up with you in a minute, but I want to tell you a story first about Nick and Tori. Nick and Tori were engaged earlier this year, and they're huge NASCAR fans. And NASCAR is this whole racing uh, organization, and some of you don't care. Some of you love NASCAR, uh, but this couple loves NASCAR. They love it so much that earlier this year, they were engaged to be married at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Now, some of you think that may sound romantic, and others of you think that's just redneck, but that's what they did. And their engagement went on, and they were chosen to be married uh, at a very unique place. And they were actually thrilled about this choice. And so and on October the 15th, just a few weeks ago, they were married at the uh, whatever 400 in Las Vegas NASCAR race. And so they prepared backstage. And you may wonder, what do you wear to a NASCAR wedding? Well, for her, her, for her big day, the bride wore a white NASCAR suit with a veil wrapped around her waist. The groom wore a white button-up shirt, a tie, a NASCAR jacket, and matching pants. They were ushered out to the pit area by Kevin Harvick's car. And the actor who officiated the wedding was Gerald Downey. And Gerald Downey got there. And, of course, NASCAR is all about speed. You know that. It's all about speed. So this wedding was labeled as the fastest wedding imaginable. It was called a pit stop wedding. So they all got in place and... Uh, Gerald looked at Nick and said, Nick, do you take Tori to be your wife? I do. Tori, do you take Nick to be your, your husband? I do. I now pronounce your husband and wife, kiss the bride. And just like that, they, they, they kissed, the crowd cheered, and off they went, and they got it done in less than 10 seconds. How about that? For the fastest wedding imaginable. Um, guys, that may appeal to some of you. Ladies, it probably does not appeal to you because you wait a long time for your, your big day. And just like that, it's over. Well, I want to talk to you about a wedding this morning that was a whole lot longer than less than 10 seconds. Uh, In fact, it went on for hours, and it took so long that 10 people in the wedding party fell asleep. And when those people woke up, five were in a good position and five were not in a good position. And I want us to ask a question of the text this morning as we look at this. Why were these five 
They're called foolish virgins. Why were they unprepared for the wedding feast, the, the best part of the wedding? And then I want you to ask yourself the question, am I prepared for the wedding feast? Let's look at Matthew 25. Now, this, these words of Jesus are in a larger context called, as you saw on the screen, the Olivet Discourse. If you look back in chapter 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem. And as you know, the religious leaders particularly, they, they rejected him. They refused to receive him as the Messiah. And so because of that, he lamented, he grieved over Jerusalem. You, you can read, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. I long to have a relationship with you, but you were not willing, the text says. And so after that, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He crosses the Kidron Valley and he goes over to the Mount of Olives and the disciples come to him and they ask him privately, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end? And are you thankful that Jesus prepares us for what is to come? He didn't say, guys, you're just going to have to figure it out. Guys, this is a mystery. I'm not going to tell you. He spent two whole chapters of Scripture telling them exactly what will happen. And he told seven parables about what will happen. And if you notice in those parables, Jesus is not in any of those. And what he's telling them is that there will be a long period of delay. You have the first coming of Christ. Then you have a long period of delay. We don't know how long that is. We're still in that period. And then all of a sudden, he will come back. And in the meantime, how are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ? And that's what the Olivet Discourse is about. In a word, it's about readiness. Jesus tells them, I want you to be ready. You need to be watching. You need to stay alert so that when the Son of Man returns, you won't be surprised. Because will, it will be unexpected, um, like a thief in the night. But I want you to be prepared. And so that's, that's what these parables are about. So our parable falls in the middle of that in chapter 25. So Jesus begins by saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now these ten virgins were young teenage ladies who were attendants of the bridesmaid, or of, of, the, of the bride. They were bridesmaids, essentially. They helped her get her dress ready and prepare for her big day. Now, we need to understand a little something about first century Jewish weddings to really appreciate what's happening here. There were multiple stages to a wedding. The first stage, and you may not appreciate this, but they did. Uh, the first stage was parents would arrange the marriage between the bride and groom. And now the bride and groom had to give their consent, but the parents would arrange the, the wedding. And then the second stage is there would be a period of engagement or betrothal leading up to the big day. Then the third um, stage was the groom. This is, represents the groom's house. The groom would leave his house with his friends. He would travel over to the bride's house. This is step, step three. Then in step four, he would be greeted there. They would have the wedding ceremony. They would become husband and wife. Step five is the, the, the 10 virgins or bridesmaids would perform a, or set up a, like, a processional. They would have torches and they would hold up their torch, they would light the way, to, they would illuminate the way all the way back to the groom's house. So it was an important job. They had to be dependable because it was in the middle of the night, it was dark. So they were there to, to, to hold up their torch. And the bride and groom would go back to the groom's house. They would consummate their wedding or their marriage. That was step six. 
And then step seven, they would have a feast and banquet for days. So those were the seven steps in a first century Jewish wedding. Now, the story begins in step three. So the groom is on his way to the bride's house. And then by the end of the story, we fast forward and we're all the way to step six or seven. So that's just a little, you know, kind of big picture of what is happening here. Now, verse two, it says, Jesus says, five of them were foolish, talking about the the 10 virgins. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, at this point, you wonder what distinguishes them? What is it that makes them foolish? What is it that makes the others wise? We're not told yet. Verses three and four tell us the word for is 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 a term of explanation. For when the foolish took their lamps, now a lamp would have been a wooden stick with a rag at the top wrapped around it, covered in olive oil. And it would burn for about 15 minutes and then it would go out. And so if you were wise, you took an extra can of olive oil so that when it went out, you could put more oil on the rag and light it back and you had light. So the wise were those who took extra oil, but the foolish did not take any extra oil with them. Now we're not told why at this point, All that we need to know right now is that there was a decision made that had an impact later. A decision was made at this point that had later consequences. Now, uh, Eugene Peterson called called this verse, he translated, five were silly and five were smart. Okay, so you've got got the foolish and the wise. Now, Matthew, this term for, um, for wise just means prudent or thoughtful, sensible. You know, the, the, the wise ones thought through this and thought, you know, I, I'm going, I'm, I bet I'm going to run out of oil and I'm, I'm going to need some. And so I'm going to, I'm going to be responsible and I'm going to take some extra oil. And the, the term for foolish is used six times in Matthew's gospel and then only six times in the rest of the whole New Testament. So it's interesting. Matthew has this inclination to talk about foolish behavior. And if you think about Matthew 7, remember the wise man? who built his house on the rock. Then you have the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So you have this wise, foolish distinction. That's the same thing that Matthew's doing here. But the wise took flask of oil with them. Now, in the midst of all this, there is a delay. The bridegroom is delayed. Now, we don't know why he's delayed. We don't know if he is preparing the home for his new bride. Is he setting up his finances or I don't know, is he working late? We're not, we're not told, but the point is, it's not, ultimately it's not that important, but it, it, he's just delayed. In the midst of the delay, it says they all became drowsy and slept. Now all of us know, understand what this term drowsy means. It means to nod, okay? You ever do that? You ever just get so sleepy you start doing this? You know, yeah, some of you do it, you do it in the sermon. Some of you do it, you do it, I'm just, oh, I'm just so sleepy. Those in the student ministry, we had donuts this morning. It was so good. And you start falling asleep. And that's what it means. All of us have been there, afternoon meeting, or you're in class, and you're just like, oh, I cannot stay awake. That's what it means to, to get drowsy. And then, uh, then it says they slept. Now, slept is just imperfect tense. For, it just means they were out cold. Okay, they were just sound asleep. We don't know how long the delay was, probably two to three hours. So they were fast asleep. They were gone, okay? Uh, Jesus does not fuss at them. He's not making fun of them. He's just describing what they were doing. 
Okay, so he's not praising them for sleeping. He's not fussing on them for sleeping. He's just, that's how they chose to spend their time. It was late at night. They were tired. They were asleep. Now, uh, but at midnight, there was a cry. Everything changes now at this point. The, the, the story's picking up, starting to pick up steam here. Here's the bridegroom. There was a cry. Come out to meet him. And essentially, the cry meant, look, the bridegroom, you know, he's here. Although he's not been, he's not arrived yet over at the house, but somehow he's in transit. Somebody has spotted him. And maybe that person ran back to the house, to the bride's house, to say, hey, he's coming. He, come on, come on out. Now's the time. Come out to meet him. Now, I don't know if the bridesmaids were, the 10 virgins were in the house or they're outside the house. We're not told, but they're at the bride's house and they're asleep. And all of a sudden, they are awakened, every single one of them, all 10. And they're told, come out to meet him. Now, that phrase means to come out and meet somebody very important, like a dignitary, someone who deserves a warm welcome, someone who's the person of the hour. That's who this bridegroom is. That's who they've been waiting for. And there's two things in play here. One, it was unexpected. I mean, they knew he was coming, but at the, the, the minute that he arrived or he was spotted, it was unexpected. That's why they're sleeping. That's the point of their sleep. If they, if they knew he was coming at that point, they would have been awake. But he's asleep. They're, they're asleep. And he shows up or he's in transit. And so they're awakened. So it's an, it's, it's an unexpected arrival. But there's a second thing happening here. And it's a lot more serious. And it's judgment. Remember back when in the book of Exodus, pastor led us through that. Remember in the 10th plague in Exodus 11, the Lord said, about midnight, I'm going to send out my angel to the Egyptians and all the firstborn will die. What time does it say here? Midnight. About midnight. This is, a, this, this, this is about judgment. The groom is coming. He's unexpected, but he's also bringing judgment with him. And we don't, you don't know that yet because we haven't seen it yet, but that's, that's, that's what is about to happen. So all 10 virgins immediately respond to the call. It says they rose and trimmed their lamps, which means they put their lamps in order. Their, their lamps would have burned out over here while they were sleeping. So they wake up. Now for the, the ones who had brought the extra flask of oil, hey, this was no big deal. I've got my, my jar. I just put a little more oil on it, light it. I'm ready. But for the unwise ones or foolish ones, as they're called, this was a problem because their, their top of their torch rag was completely dry. And it says, <clears throat> they're lighting it, and it, it says in here, it is going out. And it's, it's this idea, there's, there's like a sense of urgency now, like you're trying to light dry charcoal, and it just keeps going out, and you get so frustrated. That's what's happening here. They're lighting it and lighting it and lighting it, and it just keeps going out and out, and they're getting frustrated. Meanwhile, the five wives wives were just like, hey, I'm in good shape. I, I prepared. Um, but they did not. And so now the groom's sighting has presented a problem. And so now at this point, you may think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, can, can the five foolish ones just tag along with the wise ones and, you know, just kind of stand by them? And um, that way, you know, at least five of them have light. Uh, well, weddings were a big deal. And these 10 had been recruited by the bride to perform a certain job. And there's a certain etiquette, a certain responsibility, a certain expectation. And each one of these 
virgins was expected to illuminate the way so that the wedding could go on as planned. They've been preparing for months for this. And so the foolish ones thought, well, you know what? The best course of action for us right now, since we're out here and it's the middle of the night, why don't you give me some of yours? In fact, they command the tent. Give, me, give us some of yours. And I, I wonder if they had their hand already just standing out. Give, give me some of yours. I mean, you, by the way, you have plenty. You obviously prepared, so give me some of yours. And you would think that the wise would say, well, sure. Hey, it's not a problem. Uh, I'm generous. And I'm, I'm feeling good. I've got, I've got a little bit extra here. But that's, that's not what happened. And it reveals something about these five foolish virgins. And it's our main point in the story. Failing to prepare reveals our faulty assumptions. Failing to prepare reveals our faulty assumptions. Now, we're not told, but up to this point, we've not been told why they didn't take oil with them or extra oil with them. It does not say they forgot. It does not say in the story that they forgot to bring, that maybe the five could go, oh, I know you forgot. We were in such a hurry. It doesn't say that. It just says they didn't take it with them. When they were in their right minds, when they had time to consider what was happening, they knew all the steps in a, in a Jewish wedding. They knew exactly what was going to happen. They didn't consider it important enough to take extra oil. And so they didn't do it because they made some faulty assumptions. And I want to walk you through what those three faulty assumptions are, because I believe that's what some of us might be making this morning. The same faulty assumptions, or maybe, maybe even one of the faulty assumptions. Remember what's happening here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the bridegroom in this story. He is the one that shows up unexpectedly. He is the one that arrives. The 10 virgins are, is a picture of the church today. The 10 virgins are those who are gathered together. They all look the same. They all have the same torches. They, maybe they were all dressed alike. They were all probably very intelligent, maybe attractive young ladies, smart, hard workers, maybe came from great families, but only five were wise and five were foolish. Now, five wise means only five were saved. It's a picture of the church. Five were saved, five were not saved. And the only thing that distinguished the two is when Jesus came back. They were undistinguishable until Jesus returned. And so that's what's happening here. And so these five foolish virgins, and perhaps some of us, have made some faulty assumptions. And I want us to walk through those based on what's here in this story. First, the five foolish virgins, and perhaps some of us, assume that someone else will assist. We assume, they assume, that someone else will assist. Hey, I don't need to take any extra oil. Come on. These five, they've already got it. It's a one-to-one ratio. There's five of them, five of us. Surely they can share a little bit and we can both burn our torches and it's not, it's not a big deal. But, but that's not what happened. The, the wise answered, verse 9, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The word buy is a command. You, told, you commanded us to give, we're commanding you to go buy. Now, in the middle of the night, was anything open? Apparently, weddings were a big deal. Certainly they would have known a wedding's happening. Maybe they, there's a little market close by that they, they stayed open, so oil was available. So they command them to go buy. Now at this point, some of you think, 
isn't that just really foolish? I mean, isn't that selfish of the wise virgins? Why, why wouldn't they share? Why, why, why not be generous? Um, well, the wedding had to go on. The wedding's been prepared for months, been planned for months. Um, if they were to give their oil away, there's not going to be enough to light the procession. So the wedding's not going to happen. Uh, you're going to have some upset people. You're going to have some offended people. Uh, the whole process is going to be disrupted. The preparedness of the wise would not benefit the foolish. Not in that moment. One of the faulty assumptions that some of us might be making is that when Jesus comes back, somebody else will be able to assist us spiritually. And for, on, on one hand, it's understandable to think that way because people assist us with things all the time in life. My wife, assist, she's, she's incredible. She assists me with things all the time. She, she can think ahead. She knows what I'll need. She, she, she assists me every day um, here at the office. Dawn Sawyer can anticipate things. She's way ahead of most of us. She's way ahead of me here, okay? And she can anticipate things, and she'll know, hey, he's going to need this, and this is coming up, and, 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 and Whitney was the same way when she worked here. So it's, it's understandable for us to think, well, someone else is going to assist me. Uh, my parents, my, our, my in-laws, they, they assist us with the children. They assist us with advice and wisdom and all of those things. We get a lot of assistance every day. But when it comes to my spiritual life, no one else can assist me. No one else can, is going to stand with me when I stand before Jesus Christ and give me any assistance. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every single one of us will stand before Jesus Christ. And we'll give an answer, give an account for our lives. My wife can't help me at that moment. I can't help her at that moment. We can't help our children at that moment. Well, what about unbelievers? Well, Revelation 20, verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, each one of them, according to what they had done. Nobody's exempt. Believer, unbeliever alike will all appear before Jesus Christ. And the only thing that will matter in that moment is, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Or have you rejected him and failed to prepare like these five foolish ones did? That's the only thing that will matter. That's the first foolish assumption that they made, faulty assumption. The second, there's another faulty assumption that they made. It says, while they were going to buy... The bridegroom came. So evidently, they took the advice of the wise and said, okay, fine, you're not going to share. We've got maybe 20 minutes. We'll, we'll hurry. He's not here yet. We'll, we'll run off to this market, and we'll be able to get back in time. And so they, they run off. Uh, but it says, but while they were gone, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, in other words, the others weren't ready, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. What's the end of verse 10 say? And the door was shut. Okay? So now we fast forward to the last step or two of the wedding. While they're gone, purchasing their extra oil, they come back and find a door shut. They go, uh-oh. They found the door shut. So the next faulty assumption is we assume we will have ample time. We assume we will have ample time. 
Remember, we're living in that time of delay. We're living in a time of delay. We just think, you know, I'm going to live for myself right now. And at some point, I'll become a Christian. Or at some point, I'll make Jesus the Lord of my life, but not right now. Um, Because I've got time. Because uh, we live in a secular world that says it's all about the here and now. And so I've, I've got time. And the reality is none of us know how much time we have. But, but these foolish virgins thought, we've got time. There's, there's, there's ample time. I'll be able to flip the switch, you know, at some point, and, and I, can, I, can, I can make it back in time. And some of you think the same thing. I've, I've got time. I can keep living how I want to live. Jason Gay is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. This guy is a, this guy is a fabulous writer. Uh, I ran across this months ago. Uh, and just been waiting to use it. He is a fabulous writer. He writes this story. This is back in May. And it's on Jimmy Butler, who plays for the Miami Heat. He's a basketball player. And the title of the article reads, The the One Man You Don't Want to Meet in the NBA Playoffs. Miami star Jimmy Butler is a low-key presence during basketball's regular season. When the games really count, he lives to break opponents' hearts. And he's talking about how Jimmy Butler just flips the switch and becomes this totally... Radically different players. I want you to listen how Jason writes this article. If I told you Jimmy Butler lived alone in a stone cave without furniture, would you believe me? If I told you he slept upside down like a bat and ate a boiling tub of batteries and lug nuts for breakfast, would you buy it? If you've watched Butler in the NBA playoffs, you might. Behold a tale of two Jimmys. The first Jimmy is the capable Jimmy. The competent, if low-key star who toils for the Miami Heat during the regular season. At 33, he remains a nice player, hard-nosed, good stats, regularly an all-star, but he doesn't leap off the screen when you watch him on the court in November or January. The second Jimmy, playoff Jimmy. This is playoff Jimmy. Listen to playoff Jimmy. This Jimmy shows up in late April when the basketball postseason gets underway. Casual fans start watching. Tension ratchets up and every game matters. This Jimmy jumps off the screen and smacks you straight in the face. Nobody wants a piece of him. His talent leaps from capable to competing to riveting and ruthless. He becomes a menace on both sides of the court, especially late in the fourth quarter. Playoff Jimmy doesn't just want to win playoff games. He wants to remove an opponent's heart and hold it aloft for all to see. He's the NBA's most dangerous man. The main reason why the understaffed, unglamorous heat a number eight seed that barely scratched their way into the playoffs are four wins away from reaching another championship final. Playoff Jimmy. Capable Jimmy. Flip the switch. Playoff Jimmy. Some of you may be living that way spiritually. I'm going to be capable Barry. And then one day I'm just going to flip a switch. And I'm going to become spiritual Barry over here. The problem is you don't know if you have time to do that. It's a faulty assumption. When they came back, the door was shut. It's too late. They thought they'd have time. So they come back. And while, they're, while they come back, notice what happens. Um, the door's shut. And as a result, they, you know, I can, can you imagine just walking up to the door? And just, you know, as soon as you catch sight of it, you see that it's closed. And you hear all the laughter and the joy. And maybe they're singing and dancing and all of this is happening behind the door, but all they see is a, is a closed door. And they think, well, that's all right. 
That's all right. He'll, they'll let us in. After all, we're in, the, we're in the part of the wedding party here. I mean, I know the bride. I mean, she invited me to, to, to be a part of this, and um, maybe she'll let me and my four friends here in. So they, they go up to the door. It doesn't say they knocked on the door. It doesn't say they banged on the door. It just says they spoke. Lord, 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 open to us. Open's a command, meaning they expected him to open. They expected him to go, oh, okay. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I forgot that you, I forgot you, you know, y'all had gone away. It's okay. Come on in. They, they, Lord, Lord, open to us. Notice, how does he, Jesus respond? He's on the other side. He's on the other side. Verse 12. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I don't know you. I mean, imagine what all these girls had going for them. Smart, young, beautiful girls. Now they're, now they're locked out. And now the message of this story comes alive. I do not know you means I'm disowning you because we don't have a relationship. Jesus was not punishing them because they were late. He's punishing them because he doesn't know them. He doesn't have a relationship with them. When they had time over here, they lived in the time of delay. They, they, they didn't prepare. They didn't, they didn't enter into a relationship with him. And so he says, I, I, I don't know you. Now, here's the third faulty assumption that they made, maybe some of us are making. We assume Jesus will be agreeable. We assume Jesus will be agreeable. We assume that when we get to this moment, Jesus will be agreeable. We'll go, come on in. Barry, come on in. Come on, I, I know you, you worked in ministry for a number of years. Come on in. It's okay. Come on in. I know you're late, but it's, it's okay. I'll open the door for you. That, that's what we assume. And Jesus is saying that will not happen unless you know me, Jesus says. The whole point of the story is that so they will prepare, is that his followers will be ready when he comes back. Think about who's listening to Jesus tell this story. Judas. Judas is one of the 12 He's listening to these words, and Jesus is saying, prepare now, guys. Prepare now, Judas. Judas didn't prepare. He's over here. He's got time. Maybe I, I walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus will be agreeable. Come on. And, and he, he, didn't, he didn't do it. You know what the, the tone of Jesus' words here in verse 12, you know what it means? Don't bother me, the door is shut. And some of you think, whoa, that's cold. Jesus would say that? Yeah. I thought God is forgiving. thought he's loving. He is. But at some point, the door will shut, and he's holy. And those who don't know him will not enter in. That's the whole point of the story. You have to go back to the previous story. You know who Jesus refers to in the previous parable? Noah. He says, the son of man, when, I, when he comes back, it'll be like the days of Noah. In other words, nobody took Noah seriously. It's going to rain? Come on, Noah. But at, one, at some point, the door of the ark was shut, and only eight people survived. At some point, the door will be shut, Jesus says. And nobody else is getting in. Doesn't matter who else you think you know. Doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. If you don't know Jesus Christ, we're not getting in. It's not cold. Failure to prepare and bring extra oil was an insult to the groom and to the, west of the, rest, of the, west, 
the rest of the wedding party who prepared. There is a point when it will be too late to be saved. The bridegroom did not exclude these five foolish virgins from the marriage feast. They excluded themselves when they failed to prepare. They, well, how, could, how could Jesus not invite them in? They had time. They had time. They lived in the time of delay, and they, they didn't prepare. Notice that proximity does not equate to participation in the marriage feast. They, look how close they were, right there at the door. They could hear the voice of Christ. They could hear the voice of the groom. The marriage feast is talking about Revelation 19, the, Revelation supper, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a scene of rejoicing and worship and singing to God. That's what they could hear. And that's probably what they thought. I just always assumed I would be there. And, and now they're, they're locked out. Notice that on this side, security. When you're on this side of the door, security. Love, acceptance, joy, peace, forgiveness. On this side, wrath, seclusion. For the rest of eternity, that's what they would have to endure. There will come a point when the door to heaven is shut and it will be too late. And so these five experience the consequences of their own negligence. J.C. Ryle said, knowledge, conviction, the value of the soul, the need of a savior shall all burst on men's minds one day like a flash of lightning, but it will be too late. Jesus ended the story this way, verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. It means stay alert. It doesn't mean don't sleep. It just means prepare now. And it's in the present tense. Watch. Watch. Keep watching. Keep watching. Keep watching. And Jesus is telling these men, prepare. He's telling us, prepare now. Prepare now so that when he comes, you'll be ready. Prepare now. Place your faith in Christ now. Prepare now so that when Jesus comes, you'll be ready. Do you know what the number one Googled question is for 2023? What to watch? What to watch? What do I watch? That's the number one question that's been Googled this whole year. It's a question about entertainment. There's nothing wrong with TV in itself, but we live in the time of delay, and delay can lead to distraction. And Satan can use entertainment. to enter, We try to entertain ourselves to death, and it's a distraction. And we, we, while we're entertained so much, we're not preparing for what's to come. We prepare for what's important to us. I guarantee you, some of you ladies have already prepared for Thanksgiving. You've already had casseroles cooking. You got your recipes. You already looked them up. You got them set out. Men, you prepare for hunting season. Get those fields ready, August, September. You go into a ball game, prepare for a ball game, get those tickets ahead of time. What's the weather going to be like? We prepare for retirement. We say we prepare for what's important to us. So why would we not want to prepare for eternity? Now's that time. Jesus is saying, prepare now. Prepare now so that when, you, when, when he comes back, we can, we can hear, okay, enter into the joy of your master instead of I don't know you. But it, it starts right now. Okay, there's two, two ways we can prepare. First, place your faith in Jesus Christ now as your Lord and Savior. Now as your Lord and Savior. Because you know why? For right now, the door's still open. It's still open for anybody to come in. Whoever wants to come in, the door's still open. Anybody, whoever you are, the door's still open for you to come in. In John chapter 6, 
There was a crowd looking for Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, and they finally found him. And they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And you know what? Jesus had just mentioned eternal life in the previous verse. So they're asking, how do we prepare for eternal life? What must we do, Jesus? We want to be ready. You know what Jesus said? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom, whom he has sent. You want to be ready for eternal life? Believe in Jesus. Preparedness can neither be transferred nor shared, one, one source said. When you and I get in that moment, somebody else's preparedness is not going to benefit me. I've got to prepare myself. Second, if you're already saved and you've already made that decision, you're prepared to enter in through that door, then make it the mission of your life for others to be saved. Make it the mission of your life for others to be saved. You know, the Christian life is about others. It's about other people. It's praying for others every day. It's using your career, using your, your school, your neighborhood, your apartment, all those things. Use the lives of those things as a platform to share the gospel, to have gospel conversations, to talk. And if that's hard for you, then we'll try to equip you how to do that. You know what Daniel says? Daniel 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You want to shine like a star forever and ever, ever and ever? Turn people to Christ. Lead people to Jesus. Turn many to righteousness. That's the wisest way we can spend our time as a follower of Jesus. Leading people to Christ. Starts with your own family. Starts with your children. And then we expand out from there. Well, a week from tomorrow, Monday, November 20th, will mark the 76th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's wedding. Almost 76 years ago, they were married, 1947. The couple met a number of years earlier. She was only 13, and he was five years older. They met, and she just was head over heels over Prince Philip and really had never had any eyes for another man after that. They began corresponding through letters and got to know each other. In July of 1947, they announced, formally announced their engagement. And then November 20th, 1947, 11 a.m., they were married, Westminster Abbey in central London. Now, it was post-war Britain, so, you know, it wasn't quite the, um, as elaborate as royal weddings are today in terms of the bride's dress and flowers, decorations, all that. It was still a nice wedding. But, uh, but it did have all the, um, the pageantry that we've come to expect from a royal wedding. 2,000 guests were invited. The Archbishop of Canterbury was officiating the wedding. Most of the guests had arrived by 11 a.m., and they were, they were seated. They were ready to watch King George VI and Princess Elizabeth walk through the door. Since she was not queen yet, her dad was still alive, walk through the door and watch them get married. But there were a couple of guests who had not arrived yet. They were running late. Uh, and in the meantime, the king and, and um, princess are on their, in the Irish stagecoach on their way, going down the streets of central London, waving to admiring fans. We're ready to walk through the door. All of a sudden, the doors of Westminster Abbey fling open, and everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be the king. It's going to be the princess. And it was not. It was an older man named Winston Churchill and his wife, and they showed up late to the wedding. Now, and they went and found their seat. Now, if anybody could show up late to a royal wedding, 
It was Winston Churchill. And you may say, oh, yeah, but that's because he was prime minister. Not at that point he wasn't. He was in between terms. He was, he was not prime minister at that point. Do you know why he could arrive late? Because he knew the king. And he had worked closely with him for many years. Do you know Jesus as your king? The door's still open, but it won't be for long. Place your faith in Christ now. Prepare now, okay, for what's to come. Would you bow your heads? Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.